Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. Well, thanks for, thanks for being here, Charlie. Um, it's, been a, it's been a great few weeks for you, hasn't it? Yeah, a brilliant few weeks and... Um yeah, you just don't want it to stop, really. Um, no, thanks very much for having me. Not at <clears> all. <throat> and, I, and I said it's been a, an interesting journey here. I mean, just take us all the way back to, to where it started for, for you. You're from a, from a racing family. Your, your dad was a, was a point-to-point rider. Was this always your destiny? Uh, I was always mad on horses uh, from a very young age. From the age of two, um, I had a Shetland. And um, from, you know, I'd be with it most days. And uh, all the way through to now, I just haven't stopped riding and... Um, been obsessed by horses and um yeah dad used to point to point and um that kind of spurred me on I remember watching his old tapes and uh they weren't the most stylish but uh um at the time I thought he was like a superhero at the time so uh and and mum uh was always mad on um going hunting and that kind of um helped develop my riding um I did a lot when I was younger and then pony club pony racing and um that led on to um going to a yard then um this isn't the first time you and I have sat doing an interview like this. The first time was we had to remind ourselves, what, 10, 12, maybe even more years ago? Long time ago, wasn't it? <laughs> and and uh, that was because you were pony racing champion, is that right? Or no, were... I wasn't, no. <laughs> um, it was, uh, I think, um, I went on a pony racing course at mm-hmm. Newmarket and um, I think Hector Crouch was there as well and um, I think John Junior Jr. was there and a few others. And um, Anyway, um, me and Hector actually... I think we shared a room that week, and uh, he was very good from at that age, and he was quite small. Um, anyway, he got um, excellent rider or something for the week, and I got most improved. So, <laughs> and we won. Um, I think he went to um, was it um, Henry Henry Cecil's? Or, yeah, yeah, and uh, and then we won a. Um, we got to go on the morning line, so that was very exciting. <laughs> and, and that was when we first met, and and. Um, at the time, even then, you were you were pretty tall. Uh, were you were you thinking, well, this is going to be difficult becoming a becoming a jockey? Yeah, definitely. Um, everyone used to say to me when I said they said, "What do you want to do when you grow up?" And I said, "Jockey." And you know, they'd be the odd snigger because <laughs> I was starting to look a bit tall. And um, there was a stage when I was younger and I was quite fat um, up until I was about ten. And I remember, um, uh, yeah, I remember I was at. I think I went to Cheltenham the one day with my mum and dad and um, I was talking to a chap and um, he said, what do you want to do? And uh, I said, be a jockey. And I remember he burst into laughter <laughs> and that actually maybe, um, obviously upset me, but it actually triggered something and um, I lost um, a good bit of weight then. I started running and all sorts and uh, it, um, it was a good thing. <laughs> even, at, even at that very young age? Yeah, at that age, I, I was, um, I suddenly became conscious of my weight then um, 
and uh, which I needed to because uh, I suppose from the age of 10 to 15 you can really grow can't you and um, if I was a big lad then then I would never have been a jockey but were you were you being given quite a lot of encouragement by your by your family that, that this could be something realistic not as a job really no um it was quite the opposite yeah they said um dad always used to say oh you know try training or you know <laughs> you know you could go and try and be an assistant or something and uh I was just obsessed with riding and um he said it's you know they would always say it's a hard life and it's not as simple as you know you you know you watch it on you know I grew up watching channel four and you see all the glory of it and uh Obviously, they knew it's not quite as simple as that, and there's a lot, of, lot that can go wrong. So, and, and were they right? Yeah, they were. Yeah, I understood what they meant actually after a few years um, working in racing. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, if you if you really want to do something, you will do it. So, you know, it's um, it's great to, you know, be getting somewhere. Hopefully, could you identify a moment where you thought that? that being a jockey was, was realistic? I mean, so obviously, you have your first few rides, you're sort of feeling your way, you feel you know what you're doing, but was there a point where you thought, this is my career, this is who I am, I am Charlie Deutsch, a jockey? Yeah, probably. Oh, it took a long time. Um, very much when I went to Venetia's, um, that's where I felt much more established. And, um, yeah, and obviously when you start getting a good amount of rides and you're riding regularly most days that's when you kind of feel a bit more established and and a jockey so um it was probably then probably f- four or five years into mm. working in racing but you're always um you know as a jockey you always feel like you're on a slippery slope and you're always thinking you know um yeah keep the draft from the door and you're always looking for your next winner and you're always hungry aren't you do, do you still think that way? Do you still think that way? Do you, is, it, is, it that, is, it, is it a sort of fear of failure thing that, that, that drives you? I suppose so, yeah. Um, and even, like, we've had a very good start to the season, but, uh, you know, you're relying on... Um, there are some great horses, but you're relying on animals, and there's all sorts that can go wrong, isn't there? So, um, and, and obviously every time a horse wins, it goes up in the handicap, so, or, you know, it goes into higher tests, and um, you just hope they can keep winning, don't you? And... Um, you just don't know what's around the corner in this sport. Now, Venetia was um, scouting you from quite a young age, I know that, and she couldn't get you to begin with, and you went to Charlie Longston's for a little while. How did, how did you finally end up uh, where Venetia wanted you? Um, yeah, I, I, I started riding out at Charlie Longston's from, a, from school just because he was local, and, um, yeah, I had uh, uh, three good years there, and um, then I, I wanted to try somewhere else, and... Uh, I actually went back amateur for a bit and um, rode in point to points. I really enjoyed that. And um, then I, um, it was just in the summer when there wasn't much going on. And um, I think it was uh, my dad knew um, an owner of Venetia's called mm-hmm. Julian Taylor. And um, he mentioned that Venetia was looking for a conditional. And uh, dad said, oh, give it a go. So I tried to get in touch with Venetia, but um, I think I missed her. And, and then she rang me back, and I missed. And you know, I, I could. You know, it took a few phone calls, and um, uh, eventually she said, "You know, I'm not guaranteeing you anything, but come along and see what you think." And yeah, I think the first three months I didn't. I, I did. I was working away on the yard, but I didn't get any rides off her. And um, there, were, I think Aidan was stable jockey, and you know, the, the horses were winning like mad, like they can do in November, December, and it was raining and. Um, yeah, I found it amazing, but then I, I did want a slice of it as well. Yeah. But uh, eventually it came. Um, I think my first winner for her 
was uh, Arken at Cheltenham, which was great. And um, from then on, it slowly got going. Tell me a little bit about working for and with Venetia Williams and what, what she's done and meant to you. Um, yeah, it was obviously um, made my career and um, she's tutored me really well and um, she's brilliant to listen to. She understands race riding, she understands horses and um, especially on the schooling ground she'd teach you a huge amount. Um, you know, she, you, she doesn't want you to interfere with them and she wants you to be positive but not force them. And uh, if you can understand what she wants you to do, then um, it definitely, uh, it's as definitely a secret to getting horses jumping anyway. Because a lot of jockeys will talk about their relationships with trainers and the trainers will not be, you know, will not intervene too much. It, it seems to me that she's been more than just a boss to you. She's been a, a mentor as well. Oh, definitely in, in everything. And um, yeah, she'll, um, she wants you to do well and um, she wants to help you out, which is uh, great. And everyone at the yard is um, a good team and, um, you know, it's, it's a great atmosphere. It's kind of laid back, but at the same time, everyone gets, thing, gets it all done and, um, and there's huge care for the horses. Um, I suppose it comes from the top um, and, uh, you know, everyone really cares for the horses from the good ones to the not-so-good ones and, um, you know, and, and there's, you see all the horses that might maybe off um, and they're out in the fields mm. and, you know, you can recognise them out in the the, you know, out in the field as you're riding down the gallop, and um, everyone knows the horses like you know, like people. They're all their own characters, and um, yeah, I really enjoy it. There's, you know, there's um, everyone that works at the yards. I, I love asking them about their horses they ride and how how they're going and what they think, and you can learn a lot from that as well. And um, yeah, no, it's just a great atmosphere there. Now I know you don't want to talk too much about 2018 because you've discussed it a lot in the press. This was your, your period of time, short period of time that you, you spent in prison because of a, a driving offence in, in Cheltenham. Um, but what you have talked about quite a lot is the way that that taught you quite a bit about the next phase of your, of your career. Had it not been for that, where do you think you'd, you'd be now? God, I don't know, really. Um, I suppose uh, if you thought about it, I don't know. Um... I mean, did you... How much did you grow up in two and a half months? I definitely, um, you definitely see things differently. Um, and uh, I think it makes you mentally tougher. And, um, yeah, it, it definitely changes your outlook. Um, but, uh, no, um, it's just about getting on with things and um, keep looking forward, really. And, you know, at the, at the time, you know, you're, you're clearly, you know, somebody of incredibly... You know, good character, good reputation, you know, close friends, close family. Um, it must have been incredibly difficult for you. Well, you know, it, it happened. Um, you know, I was in the wrong, so, you know, you've got to face it. And, uh, um, yeah, the people around me were the ones that, that were the best, really. And, um, and, you know, they're the ones that supported me, so uh, all credit to them, really. And who who was it who really sort of got you through that period? Who would you credit with that? Oh, um, um, Meg, my girlfriend, was um, brilliant. You know, she she helped me a huge amount, and 
you know, she's probably the person I speak to the most. And, you know, I talk to her about racing and stuff. And, and she, she, she works at Venetia's as well. And she, she knows all the horses. And, um, yeah, we have a, a great partnership. And, um, you know, she, she's probably been the most involved with everything. So, yeah. Um, and then, obviously, I felt sorry for my poor family, my mother and everyone. And, um, and then Venetia obviously supported me greatly. So, um, no, a, you know, you need good people around you and that, and that's you know if they're not around you then you can't do anything can you Welcome back Nicky Henderson will be along very shortly to talk about Constitution Hill and so much more but first of all Neil Channing's mm. here in the middle of what's that Neil You stitched me up you said you've got ages you've got time for a cake and, uh, yeah, well, anyway. You've always got time for a cake. <laughs> Definitely got time for a cake. You can, as usual, dance to the beat of your own drum. But very it, nice to see it. It looks very nice. It is real. <clears throat> it's fresh. Yeah, very, very tasty, actually. It hasn't been here since the last time I was in. Uh, you're, you're very real. How fresh are you feeling? I'm feeling quite fresh. I, um, I, I expect we'll talk more. Well, we will, I'm sure, talk mm. more about yesterday. I, I sort of went into yesterday thinking, oh, God, it's one of those January Saturdays that's not as good as uh, some of the other weeks of the season. But actually, by the time I went to bed, I thought, oh, actually, I really enjoyed that racing today, yeah. Well, it needed the, it needed the star of the show, didn't it? Yeah, for sure, yeah, yeah. What, in the, in the uh, veterans' chase, you mean? Well, that's the one. What did, you, <laughs> what, what did you make of Constitution Hill? Yeah, well, it's a stupid question, isn't it? What did you well, obviously, I mean, it was... Which superlative do you want to get out of the top draw? Well, I mean, obviously, from my point of view, the, the initial thing is to think... Right, am I, you know, am I a backer or a layer for the Supreme? Yeah. Um, I, I noticed uh, Matt Chapman said that only the small firms, uh, one of the smaller firms, I think it was William Hill, smaller firm these days, uh, they were going seven to four. Uh, somebody else was nine to four. I think I was in the seven to four camp, really. I mean, I, you know, horses obviously do get injured, and, and I heard somebody was saying, oh, there's a chance it, it moves. There was a chance that JP buys it and ends up with two, and then one of them has to go to the Ballymore. Um, I don't know. I think I, I think on the day these races cut up, don't they, at Cheltenham? It's hard to see it being bigger than even money, isn't it, on the day? Really? I think so. Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, I mean the, the Supreme. Even you know, with, we don't get 24 runners in the Supreme anymore. This could easily be even with Willie Mullins. I'm not, saying, yeah, I'm not saying there's no other runners in the race. It's not a one-horse race, but uh, it, it, like, if you think about percentage chance of it shortening, percentage chance of it lengthening, if it gets to the race, it's way more likely to be evens than 11 to 4 on the day. So do you want to take 9 to 4 now and just bet that you know, it doesn't get injured? Um, yeah, I think I think I, I wouldn't want to be a layer at this current price. I mean, I mean it was hugely impressive, obviously. Uh, of course, we've only seen it twice at Sandown, which means we know it runs up a hill, but we don't know uh, whether it goes the other way round. Um, uh, we've seen it on good to soft. We've seen it on heavy. Cheltenham, you know, the last few years we've had a lot more rain, and uh, it's it's much more likely to be on the sort of softer side of good than than the old thing where they always used to call it good to soft when it was really mm. good to firm. Um, but, you know, it's Nicky Henderson. Like, you tend to think of them as horses that want faster ground. So I, th I, th I think it ticks the ground box. It's obviously hugely classy. It jumps really well. Um, 
yeah, I prefer it to his other one, I think, by quite a long way. I know the market does, obviously. Why? Well, because the other one's fizzy and problematic and... Is he problematic? Well, so they say. I mean, we we haven't actually seen so much of that at the race course, but they did the gallop, didn't they? They took it to the gallop because they were worried about that kind of aspect. We're going to find out in a minute. Yeah, well, I suppose. um, But, uh, yeah, I I mean, the market tells you, but I, I think... Uh, yeah, I like Constitution Hill quite a lot better of the two. Uh, he just looks very straightforward, horse, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah, and, and a really good jumper, yeah. OK. Um, well, I guess one of the questions is whether he goes straight from here to to Cheltenham or whether he has a run in between. But I don't, I don't see any... I don't well, see he any, will, won't he? I don't go see straight any, to Cheltenham. Yeah, I don't yeah. see any motivation I'll be in having amazed another if run. he doesn't, yeah. OK. Yeah. Well, Constitution Hill's owner, uh, Michael Buckley, flew in from Florida... Uh, to watch the uh, to watch the race yesterday, and I began by asking him how good he was. He, he was amazing, wasn't he? I mean, he was. He looks like a really, really good horse. Let's hope he's he is a really good horse, but he certainly looks like one. I mentioned your long association with Nicky Henderson. You've had lots of horses that have turned up on their first novice hurdle and have won and have looked really impressive. When you saw him first time here at Sandown, did you think, oh my, I've got something very, very good on my hands? Well, I was, I was pretty surprised because Nicky was worried that he wasn't actually... Shall I turn this damn thing off? It's entirely up to you, Michael. It's not, Sorry. It's not distracting me at all. <laughs> not much. Um, distracting me. Um, he was a bit worried that the horse mightn't have been fit the first time because he hadn't been able to get on the grass with any of his horses. And, um, and, and I know with the way Nicky trains and having had one or two pretty good horses with him before that... He, it's often with him that he doesn't he doesn't work them very hard. So if they find work easy, oh God, um, that might be him now. No, it's not. It's Islay ringing. Your friend who sends you her love. Islay, Islay, your partner. Yeah. Who's calling from Florida? Yeah. So Just I'll say you're on the t- phone to me and you can't. You, you can't turn her off. You, you can't take the call at the moment. <laughs> um, so anyway, there it is, and he didn't. He was worried about the ground, but you know, Nicky, you've interviewed him a thousand times. He worries about everything, bless him. Most of all, um, if you've been with him as long as I have, and you're good friends, he doesn't want me to be disappointed. So that is more pressure for him. So he said to me, "Oh, please don't come back. It's enough pressure as it is." Um, but if I'd if I'd woken up there and gone online and seen the front page of the Racing Post. I'd have kicked myself that I wasn't here, so here I am. Now, I know you're you're quite easygoing at times, but you're you're demanding enough insofar as you want winners. You you like to you like to you like to win races. And tell me a little bit about your relationship with with Nicky Henderson and why it's been so enduring. Is it is it simply because because he's delivered you with, with 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 good horses that win races, or is there more to it than that? Well, I had one trainer before Nicky, a guy called Peter Bailey, and mm-hmm. won some good races. And I worked out, which was, quite, which was quite smart of me, but it was for me, that choosing the trainer that suited you was really important. Um, because, you know, you have a winning day. It doesn't really matter who trains a horse. I mean, it, today, if you trained the horse, I'd have been as happy <laughs> as if Nicky's trained the horse. It's a question of getting through the rough days. And you need, for me, because I tend to be a bit of pretty emotional fellow, you say I seem easygoing, but I mean, I am I very emotional. I sometimes you seem easygoing. But I am very emotional. Um, and I, 
So it's getting through the rough days, and there are a lot of rough days, and I've had a lot of rough days, which is what having a good horse makes it having a good horse so special. And so I found with Nikki someone that I could get through some pretty bad days with. I mean, talking about a, a really, really good horse, the proclamation, I remember getting a letter from him the following week with all these tear stains on it. And um, we've had a lot of tears together, as well as some great times. Yeah, for those who, who don't remember, the proclamation was a, a truly brilliant horse who, who sadly lost his life not, not that long after he'd really flashed his, his early brilliance. And it's something that you've really struggled to, to, to get over in a lot of respects, isn't it? And now we're talking nearly 30-odd years ago now. 1989. Yeah. So 30, More than 30 33 years ago. ago. Yeah. yeah, he... Um, Nicky told me at the time that he was the most talented horse he'd ever trained. And um, he said, I can't say he's the best horse because he's done so little. And um, he fell at Ascot. And um, and uh, it, was a t it was a terrible time, I have to say. I mean, even now it feels painful. He, um, I rang him on the way to going to the opera that night and he said he's fine and I've got a vet who's gonna pop in in the night. And then he rang me 20 past nine the next morning to say the horse couldn't stand up and I had to go to Ascot that day to see another horse uh, and I remember this is kind of bearing my soul here a bit but I got driving past the Brompton Oratory and I stopped the car and I went in and I lit 30 candles and said I will really be a believer if you save this horse's life uh, anyway when I got to Ascot he'd been put down so you know listen it, it's not good to, to dampen a really happy day with stories like that but there are some pretty rough times as well having said that you you've got to want it you've got to love this game an awful lot to come out of that and to keep wanting to invest in horses to keep bringing them to the races to keep putting yourself on that emotional roller coaster putting yourself through that emotional ringer again yeah but life's for living isn't it in a way i mean either all of us when we have a setback we're going to curl up and call it a day, or you just carry on and hope there's a better day around the corner. And there was one of those today, and it's wonderful. And the, you know, the, he's a gorgeous horse. He's a he's a lovely. I was talking to Barry Geraghty this morning, and he said there's not many three-year-olds where you could let your nine-year-old daughter ride a horse. And that's that is what this horse is is about. I mean, he's just a gentle, sweet baby of a horse and and yet he's got this engine which is magnificent you mentioned barry Garrity. there's a nice little bit of symmetry there as well all the success he had for you particularly on your beloved finian's rainbow and he was the man who sort of brought this horse through yeah he did and and um he i rang him uh last autumn so, uh, sorry the autumn before last now back here and we were just chattering, and I wasn't thinking about it. I said, have you got anything good? And he said, I think we've got maybe the best horse we've had since Brain Power. Um, and, you know, we're going to sell it. It's going to win a point-to-point. -point. We'll get a million and all this. So I said, good luck to you. Anyway, the point-to-pointing ended in Ireland and one thing or another, and then he came up with the sale and I bought him. And um, You didn't have to pay a million for him quite. No, no, <laughs> a lot, lots less than that. And um, sorry about all these silly stories, but... He was reading the Racing Post to Paula, his wife, this morning, he was telling me. And she said, God, all those wonderful things. Why didn't that happen when you owned him, Barry? We'd have got much more money. And he said, I couldn't care less. I'm well over that. I just hope for Michael and Nicky, he wins everything because they're friends and have been friends a long time.
I mean, I happen to love Barry, so he's been a, a good friend as, to me, and and we've won lots of races together. But he's a cracking human being, and Barry, if you're watching this, thank you. Michael Buckley, owner of Constitution Hill, in full flow. And why wouldn't you be in full flow after yesterday's Tolworth Hurdle at Sandown Park? And we, we weren't in the company of, of Nicky Henderson because uh, he has or had uh, COVID. But as he has pointed out, that was about the best cure. And he joins me on the line now. Morning, Nicky. Hey, morning. Morning. Um, uh, you're, you're looking very happy with, with life, and I can completely understand why. But the first important question is, is, is Constitution Hill in, in good constitution this morning? Uh, he was amazing. I mean, you really, you'd hardly know he'd been anywhere yesterday. He looks a bit a day in bed, but that's him. <laughs> <laughs> He's as fresh as paint. Um, I haven't had a chance to ring Michael yet, but um, no, he, I mean, he really is. He bounced down the yard and um, you, you wouldn't know he'd been anywhere. I mean, to what extent is this really a, a pleasant surprise? I mean, listening to Michael there, clearly Barry Geraghty always thought the world of this horse. Yes, I mean, I, there's no doubt that I wouldn't have bought him in the first place if it wasn't for Barry. He was, you know, he, um, he and Warren Newing, they're, they're a great pair, but we've bought a number of horses from them over the years and we've been very lucky together. Um, he was adamant about this horse and, to be fair, there were, there were, there were a lot of reasons that that's that the sales at Dogston at the time, there were a lot of reasons for not buying him. Um, but Barry was, he's always been persuasive. Um, as you know, the first horse I bought off him was Bobsworth, but that was an unbroken horse. So he didn't know anything about that. Whereas, you know, with, um, with this fella, Constitution, I mean, they knew what they'd got. Uh, I think they were pretty, you know, he was expected to win his point to point and, and, and the figure was going to be um, rather higher. Um, and, you know, it, we were just lucky to be able to buy him for what we did on the day because, um, you know, the horse, it, he just, he'd, he'd had his race and he'd travelled and he, he probably wasn't just quite looking at his best. Um, but, but Barry is, you know, we've always got on very, very well and he was very persuasive and he was very, very confident this was a good horse. Um, Temperament seems to be everything with him, Nicky. I'm, I'm fascinated to know what he's like when you work him uh, and, and when it is that he, he shows you the ability. When, when do you think, oh, actually, yes, you are, you are good? Well, it's extraordinary because <clears throat> in all his slow paces, they're not slow, they're even slower than slow. Um, and, but if you put him in behind a couple of horses... And again, I don't think he gives you tremendous. I've never ridden him, obviously, but um, you know they always say you don't know that you're sitting on anything until actually you just pull him out and you have to just say, "Come on!" And it, it, it is like changing gear, and he just takes off, and off, off we go. And I mean, it is very impressive when he does, and he does it very quickly, um, and very honestly too. He, he enjoys it. Um, he loves schooling, and he, and he loves work, but he has an extraordinary attitude to life, which is a great attitude, to be honest with you. It, it, you, you couldn't wish for better. It's, um, um, you know, he, he looks after himself, 
and occasionally he looks a bit burly and you have to sort of think, gosh, I better get, do a bit more work with him. But you know, he just loves what he does. And Nicky, the, the comparisons are inevitable between him and John Bond because they're both in your stable. Um, you're going to run them both in the Supreme Novices Hurdle unless there's some wild change of plan that you're going to tell me about, but I don't think there is going to be. Would you ever work them up sides? And if you did, what would happen? Well, I certainly never have done, and I, and I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing it to try and find out. John Bond is a very, very good horse, and I, I'm lucky. I'm the only person that doesn't have to split them, really. Um... You'd be lucky to have one. I mean, I do. I, I do I, I've got a lot. Of, you know, Willie's got the, um, the the bumper horse that was very impressive the other day over hurdles. Um, Sigurd. The Sigurd, correct. Um, and you know, he was very impressed. There's bound to be others, but we're very lucky. There's two here, and again, they both look like two milers. Um, so I suspect come the time, and it, it was lovely. I mean, the first person to ring as they passed the post was JP from Barbados. Yeah, and well done. And I mean, it, it's great because Michael would be the same with JP. They're good buddies as well. And, and everybody's a seven barrows player, which is rather nice. And, you know, I know JP would be very happy for everybody here with what happened yesterday, even if it looks like um, he uh, John Bond could be sort of threatening each other. John Bond's a completely different character. He does, uh, he, he he's a, I think as you saw him at, at Newbury, he can be on his toes. Um, he can just get a bit warm before racing, but he's getting better and better. Um, and he's much more relaxed at home. Um, and he's in very, very good form. On to the veterans' chase yesterday from one veteran to another. This is Prime Venture winning for Evan Williams. Uh, he is as, as good a target trainer as there is, mm, I'd say. Mm. This, is a, this was a, a bit of a stroke of genius. Yeah, because actually, uh, you know, he ran a, quite a decent race in the Welsh National uh, last year. Um, I think, I, I'm trying to, I'll, I'll probably get the weights wrong now, but I think it was off 139. And he, he came there yesterday off 130. He's only run four times. You know, he, he dropped nine pounds in four runs. Um, he was pretty well handicapped yesterday. I mean, I, I personally couldn't back him because uh, I, I, I have a rule that I never back horses that have bled the time. You know, once, they, once they've burst, I, I'm not too interested anymore. But um, I'll be interested to hear, you know, how he's got over that quite quickly. I actually, I actually was on Lily Pynchon. At thirty-three to one, oh. um, which was at what it, point did you think you were? I in? thought at the third last. I thought, oh, this is good. Um, yeah, I mean, it was quite an exciting. I loved the. I thought enjoyed the bet. It was exciting. I bet. I bet win only. It was quite a small bet actually. It was a saver, but uh, um, yeah, it was exciting. I, I like it when horses go off miles in front like that. Um, we had the other one, didn't we? The, the other old uh, veteran at uh, Wincanton did the same thing. Um, yesterday, and it, it makes for an interesting viewing when one, you know, and the other jockeys are not sure whether to. to I mean, I'm not talking about classical dream when when they go off in front because the, the start's botched up. That's not mm. so good. But when the jockey 
you know, makes a conscious decision to go off Mars in front. It makes for an interesting race. But this, I mean, the winner just absolutely stays all day. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was kind of obvious that one of the ones in behind was going to get there. But there was a point where you thought, oh, my God. She might have done this. Yeah, it, it was a good day to be called Williams yesterday. Yeah, lots Venetia, of Williams. Yeah, Venetia there were lots won. of Williams, weren't there? Ian uh, Williams, Ian Williams, yeah, Noel yeah. Williams that win yeah. Canton. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm yeah, not sure if Christian yeah. Williams had a winner anywhere. He might have done. I Nick and Jane sadly didn't. I, uh, unfortunately, for my bank balance. Yeah, that's but, true. Yeah, I was, Evan, I was Evan, on Moonlight. So, yeah. Evan definitely did, as he does. Evan but, definitely as he did. Does, seems to most Saturdays now, as I seem to ring him every Sunday morning. Morning, Evan. How are you? Very well. This is becoming a habit. That's a good, good habit, habit Nick. It's, <laughs> it's a very good habit. This, of all of all the successes this season, of all these big Saturday successes, this one seemed to give you a kind of real rich sense of of satisfaction. Just tell me why. Look, they all give you a lot of satisfaction, Nick. It's um, uh, Mrs. Davis has been a big supporter. I, I mean, we're lucky to have the owners we've got, and but she's had a rough old patch with. Um, well, horses just being no good, basically, and it's just nice when you can go and get a loyal owner a nice prize. It, it means an awful lot to everybody. Yeah, and, and this horse has always, you know, been a pretty, a, a pretty talented horse, but you've had to pick your way quite carefully the last, the last couple of years. It can't have been straightforward. No, he's not. Yeah, look, he bled last time, and he's a horse of a, a certain vintage, as they all were. You know, it, it doesn't always happen like ABC, like you, you'd hope it can. So... Um, from a professional point of view, to get a, a lad like him uh, to win a, a good prize, it, it just meant an awful lot. He's, he's given the lot here, and you can just sort of see him head bowed, really striving for the line, ears pricked after the line. How worried do you do, do you get when you, you take a horse to a race like that, having bled the time before? Are you confident that that might just be a one-off or, or whatever? Well, look, it's like everything, Nick. You just hope... A lot of the time, you, you, you know, you, a lot of, we, of what we do is hope. Um, the girls have been happy with him. They, they, he, he worked in the week there with uh, with my youngest, Eleanor, and um, she had a bit of a mishap with him and ended up having a bit of a, a tumble off him. Um, and, and we hoped he was very, very well then. You know, he, he seemed to, to be in good spirits with himself. But you travel in hope more than expectation a lot of the time. And for you, Evan, this season seems to be clicking along you know, really efficiently, really well. The big, the big Saturdays are, are, are producing the, the goods for you. Um, it, it, you. You sort of make it sound as though it's a bit of a game of chance and you're not really sort of... You, you don't sort of have that much control over, over the form of your yard. But could you attribute it to anything in particular? I have no control over anything, Nick, let alone the form of my yard. <laughs> Look, we train what we've got. We, you know, we have good horses. We have indifferent horses. We have uh, bits of everything. Um, sometimes you just got to, you know, keep chipping away and keep tipping away. And you know, when you're having a good time, keep doing it. And when you're having a bad time, keep doing it. There's, hey, listen, you've just got to keep keep rolling the dice. And sometimes you land on a set. Evan, thanks so much. Well done yesterday. Cheers. Thanks, lad. Evan Williams, another another Saturday. He's got a, a great race. He's also got a great jockey for riding Adam and chases. Wedge, yeah. yeah, he's he's really good over the fences. I think you're a big fan, aren't you? Yeah, I'm quite a big fan of his. Yeah, yeah. you said to me earlier today, Adam Wedge and well, our, Charlie our guest, Charlie Actually, Deutsch. Charlie Deutsch is yeah, the over the fences. I think that's yeah. 
I mean, to an extent in punting, I think, you know, I think one of the factors in deciding who you fancy to win a race or what, attrib- what attributes you, you, you know, attach weight to, I think jockeys perhaps can be a little bit of, a, of an overrated factor. But every now and then you get one and it can make a big difference. Is that because you're trying to identify a jockey that yeah, you I think mean, is like, making a little bit of a difference? It's got to be, it's is... got to be against the market, Correct, hasn't it? I mean. So, I mean, obviously... The more Charlie Deutsch and Adam Wedge ride winners on a Saturday, the less that you're going to have anything by knowing that they're really good at you know riding over fences. And the more that you come on here and and extol them, yeah, that's no, Adam yeah, Wedge I and Charlie yeah. Deutsch. Then, yeah, but anyone that's watching Luck it. on Sunday has watched the racing yesterday and could already see that Charlie Deutsch and Adam Wedge are pretty decent. Well, there's an awful lot of stories that are getting an awful lot of column inches in this sport at the moment, but there isn't anything more fundamentally threatening to horse racing's financial health and overall health than what might emerge from the gambling review. We're expecting the government white paper March, April maybe. Certainly it won't be too long now. Uh, We did try to get one of the members of the all-party parliamentary group, not for gambling, but specifically for safer gambling, for this gambling review on, but none of the peers... All the MPs would uh, would come on this morning, which is a, which is a shame. Happily, Neil Channing is alongside me. There is nobody who has followed this story more closely, and nobody ha- who has a uh, a more considered view, um, whether you agree with it or, or not, on on what the sport should be doing and what the gambling industry should be doing now. And indeed, the magnitude of the threat here, Neil. When we started talking about this over a year mm. ago, and you said, "Wake up, horse racing! This is a fundamental threat to your existence." I think an existential threat, and I, I said that it wasn't a superlative, it wasn't hyperbolic. I, I really believe that, and I, I think you know if they do, you know, I think we now we may have fought off the mm. hundred pound limit uh, that you can gamble without uh, having to send lots of information into the bookmakers. But if that came in, you know, that that we would be talking about. Uh, more than 50% reduction in the amount that people gamble, okay. uh, which, which is basically no more horse racing. Just, just before we get into the, into the weeds of this, let, can we just have a quick primer? Because mm. there'll be people saying, I don't... Okay. There will yeah, still yeah, be yeah. Yeah, of some course. of you saying, I don't know what you're talking okay. about. So in, in bullet point form, yeah, yeah. how have we got to where we're at now? OK, with the so uh, 2005, the Blair government uh, start the uh, 2005 Gambling Act. It comes in in 2007. Uh, obviously, that means they started thinking about it in 2003. If you remember, you know, Betfair didn't even start until 99. Uh, the internet was in its uh, infancy. infancy. So yeah. now we talk about we need a new gambling app because we have to move the common phrases from an analog age into a digital age. Uh, and of course, what that gambling act did was it sort of deregulated the industry and it allowed, you know, to an extent, the Wild West and whatever. And a lot of people would say that. Things like FOBTs, the, the fixed odds betting terminals, coming in and, uh, you know, caused a, an explosion in problem gambling. Now, you know, these things are debated because it, there's questions about how you measure that kind of thing. But finally, the government have come in and said, well, we, we maybe need to have a look at the legislation. Uh, they asked the uh, Gambling Commission, <coughs> who are a quango organisation, uh, to take... Uh, input from whoever wanted to send stuff in uh, and to talk about 
what might need to happen uh, in an act. And the way that parliamentary acts come in is there's a green paper, which is kind of a discussion paper mm -hmm. of what's a so consultation happen. process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's a white paper, which basically outlines exactly what's going to be in the bill so that people can then say, well, you can't put that in because of this, this and this. Uh, and it gets knocked into shape and then it goes through Parliament. Uh, we're at the stage now where the white paper's being drawn up. So we're getting close now to actually something happening. It probably won't become legislation for two years. Mm. Uh, but, uh, you know, part of that legislation... Now, when I came on originally and said, oh, there's an existential threat to horse racing, that was possibly because uh, it was felt that the bringing in of affordability checks, mm -hmm. the, the, having, you're having to send in paperwork to your bookmaker to prove that you can afford to deposit however much you want to deposit, uh, could have come in outside of the Act. It could have come in from January this year, you know, from now, basically. Um, actually, from January last year. Uh, because the gam it was felt that the Gambling Commission already had the authority to do that and they did it didn't need to be part of an Act of Parliament. Um, because so many people responded to the consultation, uh, the Gambling Commission went, oh, God, uh, you know, we expected 300 responses, we ended up with 13,000. Mm -hmm. um, we'll kick it into the long grass and we'll tie it... They can tie it... The politicians can tie it into their Act. So that was a win for the horse racing industry to, to make that happen. But now we're fighting... To an extent, uh, for it to, you know, not be in the act. Now you might say, well, I, I, you know, I don't want to see problem gambling. Uh, I don't think anybody does really. And uh, and, and I, I, you know, what, what's wrong with uh, having to prove that you can afford to gamble the amount you want to gamble? Um, and 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 it's just, you know, the whole issue is so, just how much so, is the threshold at which you have to send in, you know, a lot of information to be able to have a bet. So the received wisdom is that if stringent affordability mm. checks are mandated, and mm. I, I realise they're already being sort of played with yeah, by the bookmakers yeah, in order yeah. to try and get ahead of the legislation, but if they are mandated... Do you do you subscribe to the received wisdom that therefore everyone will flee to the black market? Well, the book, uh, the bookmakers have and how uh, how prevalent is that underground already? Okay, so the bookmakers have made the argument that um, people will stop betting on horse racing, or they'll cut down the amount they bet, or they'll go and do something else with their money uh, if they have to send, you know, twelve months of bank statements and P, uh, you know P forty five, P sixty, whatever you call it. Uh, and all that kind of stuff. Um, now, the the people who are lobbying in favour of reform of gambling would say that there's no real proof of that, that they haven't got much information on that. Um, but, you know, just anecdotally, when you speak to people, and from what we can see, you know, we know already that, uh, say, for example, in Tain, Labrooks and Corals, uh, you know, they've asked all of their VIPs to send in this kind of information... Uh, and 95% of them have just walked away and said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. Uh, the black market is an interesting one because the Gambling Commission uh, is a smallish organisation. I say smallish, you know, it has hundreds of employees, but it's still quite small. Gambling is a, a, to the UK Treasury is a, is a £4 billion industry and the Gambling Commission uh, looks after it, in a way, uh, on a budget of £25 million. Now, it's in their interest to say to the UK government, uh, we're doing a really good job, there isn't much problem, uh, uh, black market illegal gambling going on in this country. And it's true that they have done a campaign in the last kind of maybe five years ago 
um, to stop gambling in pubs and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. People used to, in rural areas, it was quite common for a, a guy to stand up in the pub and say, well, I'll take all the bets and maybe he'd run some of them over to the bookies and this kind of thing. That really doesn't happen anymore. Uh, I, to, I'm sure it happens a bit, but I mean, it, it, you know, that used to be quite prevalent. Mm. But We're what's happening now, in, in modern times, what's yeah. happening now is WhatsApp bookies. WhatsApp bookies is a massive thing. Now, I'm sure the Gambling Commission wouldn't like to admit to it, but I mean, now some of those are going to be, you know, licensed bookmakers. So smaller operators are saying, uh, come and bet with me, uh, do it through WhatsApp. Just, you know, maybe you do a, a screenshot of one of the big companies, something you've seen on their website and say, you know, you fancy 100 quid on it, I'll take a look at it. And if it, if it doesn't look like you're, uh, you're taking something that's a massive rick, uh, you know, you can have it. Now, I think... To an extent, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. These companies are licensed. They're in the UK. They're actually paying a lot more tax than some of the bigger operators. Um, and, and I don't have a problem with that. But, of course, we get this grey area where there, there's going to be some people that are like, well, you know, I've got a couple of customers off the books that just message me privately and I don't really do the affordability stuff with them. Uh, there's other companies that have, you know, got operations abroad where they send... Some of their high rollers are, you know, diverted into foreign territories, uh, and then there's just straight up illegal gambling. You know, there are. There's. I, I've been approached personally by, you know, quite a few people to say, well, you know, I can I can get you on. I've got a guy. Uh, you know, we kind of settle up in the car park or with Bitcoin or whatever, and uh, you know, we deal in WhatsApp by WhatsApp. It's it's not that difficult if you're if you're and you don't have to be a huge punter you know if you're just like a hundred quid punter it is quite hard not and, and actually this is a, this is a very key point that I've seen a few people make recently but I think it's important um, the bookmakers themselves will often talk about uh, if if we bring in affordability checks it's going to push people into the grey areas of the black market mm -hmm. um, they don't talk about if we restrict people that want to bet 100 quid at you know, 10 o'clock in the morning on the big race of the day and they can only have £8.43, they never mention at all how that might push people into the black yeah, market. Good point. Um, lots of people that I speak to have been pushed into the black market and illegal gambling years ago, long before affordability came in, just because they can't get on. Uh, so they can't really... The, the betting industry can't really have it both ways. You can't say... Uh, that, that affordability is pushing people into the black market, but uh, you know draconian restrictions is not doing that because they they both are, and the black market is is a growing thing. The Racing TV have um, done a couple of customer surveys on uh, the Gambling Review, and as good response to this one, uh, over two thousand of you responded answering questions on restrictions and limits. Eighty eight percent say that they should have the freedom to choose. Eighty four percent would not support the government forcing bookmakers to run affordability. Ninety five percent stated they'd uh, not be happy for bookmakers to have access to their bank accounts. Eighty five percent think there's a danger of betting going underground, which is what we've just been talking about. Horse racing was deemed to have the lowest risk profile amongst gambling products, and seventy six percent believe enough is done to identify vulnerable or at risk customers. Let me pick up that last point with you, Neil. Yeah. Is enough done to identify vulnerable or at-risk I, I, I think it is. I think it is. I think the companies have done a good job of trying to head this off. Uh, in the last few years, 
Um, you know, you read a lot of stories in the newspapers uh, saying things like, you know, a guy. There was one this week. A guy worked in a spa shop and he managed to nick. I can't remember. I think it was thirty-six grand over a period of time. Lost it all on 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 an online betting site. I don't. I, mm -hmm. I didn't read the whole story to know he may have lost it online gaming rather than horse racing yeah. betting. But whatever, he lost it and uh, he got. I think he got a small prison sentence and he had to give back three and a half grand of the money. But when you actually read the story, it's always from three years ago. You know, the legal system in this country is so uh, under-resourced at the moment that court cases take two or three years to get to court. Um, there's not... Uh, obviously, there are still some cases like this coming through, but not so many. The companies have put in place policies to identify this so you kind think of they thing. they have got better? I think they've got hugely better. They've done away with... They, they, they really don't wine and dine customers anymore. They don't... You know, if you speak to anybody in that level of the big bookmakers, they will tell you that they can't take people to the races and smooth... You know, smooch. What's the word I'm I looking think, for? I think you want to smooze, say smooze. Smooze. That's if the word. They not smooch. If they were smooching their customers, that'd be, yeah, that'd be a whole other area. Smooze was the word I was looking for. Yeah. Um, they're not allowed to do that anymore. They, 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 they're really not. So they, this idea that um, they're allowing people to, you know, get into some kind of relationship where they're. Uh, sort of bleeding somebody dry. That that just doesn't happen anymore. And the reason it doesn't happen is because these companies want to be wiser than white because they're worried about getting their licenses in the US. And, and that... So the, the UK market is unimportant to most of these really big multinationals. OK, what should the racing industry do... No, well, I was going to say, what should they do now? I just, mean, just quickly, just quickly before, on that last point yeah. about how they're identifying them, a lot of people would say, and I think this is a good point, that the companies have done a really good job over the years of identifying who's a potential winner and which are the customers they want to weed out and restrict. If they're so good at doing that, they ought to be equally good at weeding out anybody who's a problem gambler. And, and I think that's a strong case for... See, this is the whole problem with the debate. Well, the, 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 I was going to ask you, OK, the polarity of the debate is that you've got the, the big multinational gambling companies yeah. on, on one end and the Betting and Gaming Council sort of speaking yes. for them up, yes. up, to, up to a point. Yeah. And on the other side, you've got the the sort of what I would call the prohibitionists yeah. or, or the people who are sort of quite entrenched. Yeah, which uh, with... some of those people will say that's quite unfair. They just want yeah. to cut out problem gambling. They're quite happy for normal people that enjoy a punt to have a punt. They just don't want people to get into problem with it. Um, but you're right, some of them are prohibitionists. Um, but this is exactly my issue with the whole debate, that I don't want to really be defending Michael Duggar and the big corporations, because I don't agree with everything that they've done. And, you know, they're a very small group of people. They've got a lot of money, but they're a very small group of people. The percentage of people who are problem gamblers is a very small percentage of people. It's less than half a percent of the gambling population. That's that's what we see through all stats that we've seen over the last 20 years. Now, you know, you can argue that there's different ways of measuring it, but it's still a small cohort. 99-plus percent are just people that want to have a punt, and nobody's really speaking up for them, and I, that's what upsets me most about it. Uh, so, uh, you know, when I heard you talking to Michael Duggar the other day. And, yeah, and, so Michael and Duggar was a... Uh, I've interviewed I thought it was a very on, good interview, actually, on, yeah. on my podcast. I think it was on Wednesday, Wednesday, Wednesday or Thursday. Week. Yeah, I, I don't know. I do a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he, but he was, I was asking him the question about um, 
to the extent to which horse racing can seek to separate itself, and we've talked about yeah. this a lot, from other forms of what are considered to be more problematic gambling in order to safeguard its financial well, future. Well, I think a lot of... But is, is that realistic when racing is so inextricably... Um, it's, diff it's difficult. It's difficult. Entwined so, with, not I, to say dependent on... I think the for, your, for your average racing TV member who filled in the survey, they would say that they're interested in horse racing. They want to bet on horse racing. They're not interested in slots or bingo or whatever. Yeah. And they see it as a hobby. They see it as a cerebral activity. They see it as solving a puzzle. Is that oh, uh, he his view was that this is a, that's a slightly overplayed. Um, well, he would trope. say that because the... the do you if, buy it, though? Do well, you, no, do you but, genuinely uh, buy the view that, every, I, I, that everyone who bets on horse racing is a cerebral... Well, I think... I, think you, I, I, I saw somebody... I can't remember who it was, so I won't say a name because I, I don't want to get it wrong, but I saw somebody high up in the industry the other day say, you know, if only you looked at the figures, you'd be surprised at how many people, although they think they're involved in a cerebral activity, blah, 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 they can't resist the odd game of blackjack on a Saturday night. Um, so, you know, that, that... I don't know. I don't have those figures in front of me. I could probably get them. But um, I, I do think, though, that... with I, I liked that interview that you did with Michael Duggar the other day. But when he said that, which was you made the quite reasonable point, well, if we could separate out... Mm. games of chance and, and things where there's, you know, 8,000 spins skill, yeah. a minute... Uh, and you can really lose money really quickly against a race meeting where there's, even if you're betting on all the races of the day, there's still only a race every five minutes. Uh, you know, and if you're focusing on the bigger races, you, you might only have three or four bets in a day. Um, and these are different things. It's much harder to get addicted to something where you have three or four bets in a day than it is to get addicted to something where you're spinning a wheel every, every 30 seconds. Um, and if we could separate out the two, they could be treated differently. And you could say, well, there's a much lower level of addiction on horse racing. So perhaps they could be exempt from, uh, you know, having to uh, produce lots of information for the bookmaker to look through before they decide how much you're allowed to gamble. Um, he, of course, he's going to turn around and say, no, we don't want to do that. Uh, and he's going to play down the idea that there are two separate groups of punters because he, he, his members don't want to separate out. Bet365, the reason that they invest so much money in horse racing uh, is because... You know, they want to cross-sell to customers. Uh, when, well, you know, but horse customer racing, acquisition it, it, and customer retention horse racing, costs. Horse racing can't reverse ferret out of this, out of this codependency. No, it's not even course. a codependency, it's just a dependency. It's a dependency because, um, you know, lots of companies, betting companies, sponsor huge number of races. I won't name any companies, but there are two or three companies that sponsor a really high number of races that, Inside the betting industry, people know they're not really interested in taking large bets. Or not even large bets, £100 bets on horse racing. Uh, they're just not interested in it. They're looking to trawl shoals of new customers and to try and push them onto more profitable products. It's been a very good week for my next guest who returned from a very long stint on the sidelines to win on only his third ride back. And that takes him to what I didn't realise was a, a, a approximate, approaching a, a very significant milestone. He's now 999 career winners. He is uh, Liam Keneary. Liam, good morning. 
Morning, Nick. How are you? I'm very well. Just for those who aren't familiar, um, that long stint on the sidelines was was career-threatening. Wouldn't be an overstatement, would it? Um, well, I don't know about that so much. It just took um, it just took a long time. I had to have surgery on it twice, and it just took a while to um, to get it back to normal and get everything just get the movement back in my ankle and everything working properly, really. So just take us back to exactly when it all started, when the, uh, when the injury happened. Yeah, it was at Ascot. Um, it was at Ascot in July, and it was just a bit of um, a freak accident, really. I had ridden the horse at home. Um, Clive Cox, as I ride out there quite regularly, and I'd ridden the horse plenty at home, and I actually rode him in the Super Sprints last season as well and it was just at Ascot I don't know there was something um, must have spooked him that day or whatever I got on him in the shoe gone out and he's just basically got spooked and bolted and um, I come off him and did broken dislocated my ankle and my fibula so no it was just one of them things that was unfortunate to happen really and then and then it became it became complicated didn't it yeah, no, Jory Hill was obviously, um, Jory Hill was brilliant um, for the World Goal, really. And once he's seen the x-rays, he got me into um, a very good surgery in London, the Fortis Clinic, and I had surgery there the following week. And then went back again to get some metal rope taken out. And sort of, when you, when you started riding out again, how soon was it before you sort of felt pretty comfortable that everything was, everything was stable? Um, soon enough, really, as I said, Oxy House has been brilliant. I was able to go there from the World Goal, was having physio every day, really, um, and started writing out. You know, I, I gave it a bit of time right now just to make sure that I was comfortable with it and everything. Um, and, yeah, no, it came around pretty good, really, in the end. And was, it, was there ever any moments of doubt in your mind that you would, you would come back? Oh, no, I was always... I always knew... Um, I always knew I'd definitely be able to be able, be able to come back. Definitely, yeah. And and in terms of your your motivation, how how big a motivation was the fact that a thousand winners was just around the corner? Well, I suppose it was definitely something, yeah, that I'd been looking forward to um, to doing for a while, really. And it was a shame when at the time it was quite to happen at, in the middle of the season was um, obviously a, a, was really the old time is good, I suppose, but it was just really bad. To, Timing and no, I was definitely always that was definitely something that I couldn't wait to get back and try and do. And we've got win number nine hundred and ninety-nine here. This is the Racing TV Classified Stakes, at Kempton Park um, on Wednesday. Sometimes Liam, the little fish, are very sweet. How did it feel to be be back in the winners' enclosure? Yeah, no, it was great actually, and uh, no, it was brilliant, especially on my uh, on my third ride back. It was yeah, it was brilliant. Um, that horse factor favourite, I've won him before, I've ridden him a few times and he's tricky, he's not, he actually was quite genuine for him on um, on Wednesday, so he can be sort of a bit tricky but he decided that he don't be a favourite on Wednesday anyway. Yeah, he stuck his neck out for sure and you, know, you were content to let him have a look at the front soon enough. Yeah, well that's the thing, he was, um, I was, he was going so easy I didn't really want to disappoint him and said he's not... He's tricky enough, that horse, but, yeah, when he was going so easy, I didn't really want to be, um, to be disappointed in the meter, really. And so, Liam, what does the, what does the immediate future hold for you now? Have you, got, have you got plans for the next year, 18 months? 
yeah, we're the same as any jockey, I suppose. Just keep working hard and uh, keep trying to ride as many winners as they can and have a, hopefully have a have a good season this year. And yeah, just keep and trying. A thousand is a is a massively notable milestone for for any rider, and you've sort of crept up on us all a little bit by by stealth. Who would you who would you really credit? Um, most of that success too. If you were, if you were to sort of say people who've who've given you the most most help along the way. Um, well, there's a number of trainers really. I started. I was apprenticed to um, Rawlings and Kingsclere Ian for for the first year, and then Andrew took on the license. And um, I think I wrote a lot of winners for Andrew um, over the years. Um, David Ellsworth, who recently retired, yeah. I had a lot of success for him. Um, I wrote a lot of winners for David. Um, Stan Moore has supplied me a lot of winners. Sylvester Kerr probably over years. A lot of people have, really. Delighted to welcome my next guest to the Lock on Sunday studio for the first time. And it's an appropriate time as well. He's enjoying what is going to be his best ever season. He certainly has the highest calibre of horse he's ever trained. But he spent a significant period out of the game when he lost his business. He lost his family. He lost his livelihood. But he's now back and he's back on top. And that really is a microcosm of his life and career as a whole, which has been full of ups and downs. But as you said to me, trainer Milton Harris, um, if you hadn't been up the mountain, you'd have never come down it yeah, again. Yeah, listen, you, it's life, isn't it? So we've had a go. We've had an interesting start to life as a young man. And, and do I have regrets? I, I, there'll be people that'll be pleased I'm back. There'll be people that won't be. Hopefully there's more that are pleased and I'm back that aren't. And <laughs> the, ones I, the ones who aren't pleased, I can't do anything about them, can I? I, I only see the, the public face of, of Milton Harris, really, which is at the races when you're, you know, as you appear now. Yeah. Pretty genial, pretty open, quite approachable. Who, who's not going to be pleased to see well, Milton I, Harris there'll, back? There'll be some, there'll be some. But that's, that's their problem, not mine. But the article in the Post, Peter Thomas did, and I, and I sort of said, look, if we're going to do it, let's be honest, let's not warts and all and everything. You know, you're amazed how many people came up to me at the races and sort of said they, how much they enjoyed it. I think sometimes racing is so insular and... And the reality is we're kings, queens and vagabonds, aren't we, in racing? And, and, and we should... Sometimes we're trying to sanitise this sport and we need characters, we need difference. We can't all be from the same cloth, can we? It's a waste of time. So, so I, look, we are where we are. We, we, I've got an extraordinary team and we're so pleased. Me being here today is for my team. Tell me a little bit more about the team that you've put together because you're at a, a different base to where you originally trained. Yeah. You're now near Warminster where Jeremy Gask used to, yeah. used to be. You're quite tucked a little out of the way, but it's a great state-of-the-art place. Yeah, I asked Sam Tristan Davis at the time because he was down at Paul's and, and I spoke to Paul's, a good friend of mine, and location was a worry and Sam said, you don't go there, you know, because of the location. And we came with eight horses. There was Charlotte and Danny and a Frenchman called Dominique. I mucked everything out. We had eight horses and I mucked everything out and then rushed down the gallops to watch them. And we managed to scramble eight winners that season. Um, and they were moderate horses that had been unkind, but very loyal owners that stuck by us. And then we chipped away. And next year, we, I think we had 18, was it, the second year? Mm -hmm. And then this, this season, we were, we were on 33 at the moment. And God forbid, we, we, we short get 40 stroke 50 with a bit of luck. You're absolutely flying. I mean, resilience is the word that keeps bringing to my mind when I think of you. Where, where did that resilience come from? Was it your, was it your upbringing? Because it was a tough upbringing, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, but tough compared to who? Tough compared probably to the racing world, but in yeah. reality, I'm a working class kid and we, we had to stand up for yourself. So, so when things went wrong, and it wasn't just racing, racing was 
very public, wasn't it? Because if you if you go wrong in life, get divorced, go bankrupt, whatever happens in life, and you and you live in the middle of Ealing and you're you're a plumber, apart from your two neighbours, probably very few people know. But I was over in the Racing Post, and it was my passion, and 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 everybody knows your business. Yeah, exactly. Um, and 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 if they don't know it, they make it up, don't they? So and some of the things that were published were were true, and I hold my hands up, and I made mistakes, no issues with that whatsoever. Some of the things one day there'll be something. Hmm. To be said about them, some of the things weren't quite correct. But that's fine. That's you know that's, that's fine. Um, but we, I had a chance to roll over and die and drop away or, or fight back. And I thought, bugger this, I'm I'm fighting back. And you fought back. But yeah. I, what I, I I'll get into some of that in a minute. But what I, what I, what I was fascinated to to learn that you know you say tough compared to who, but it, but you did have to survive. You you told Peter Thomas in the interview that you know you were working behind the bar in a pub when you you're 14 and. If there was if there was aggro, you you sorted out. Yeah, but but it's a different world to today. I mean, today would be a different world. Unfortunately, today's society, unfortunately, they're more likely to pull a knife. These are big old Irishmen that had, had too many beers, and I was a sprightly, quick kid, and I could sort of get involved. So it wasn't it wasn't a nasty world. You so know, where, where 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 was this? Uh, I was born, raised Worcester way, mm -hmm. but I le I learnt more. I was a country bumpkin boy who, who thinks you know, not country bumpkin, but you know. Kids from the city who wasn't that well educated. At 18, I took off to America, and, and, and all of a sudden, the world became a different place. And, 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 but that doesn't just happen, or it didn't just happen then, as you say, country bumpkin boy growing up in a pub, working there, living on your wits a little bit. How do you just take off to America? Did you? I just remember landing in Miami, 32 quid in but my what, pocket. What gave you the idea to do it in the first place? I needed place? to do so. I, I got myself in a bit of trouble as a young fella, and, and you and you realised that this could be you, this, this could, the, you, this could what, be your life. Like, when you say trouble, I mean big trouble or just no, a bit no, of no, but bit trouble of, you don't want to be in and sort of petty crime type stuff. No, I was never a thief or anything like that. I, was, I could fight a bit and stuff like that, and you know. So you just, but you, I, I was bright enough to realise that get away from it and get on. So I landed with um, Freddie Laker. Remember Freddie Laker? I flew a one way ticket. In those days, you could fly one way. And you need a bit of luck in life. So we, we landed in Miami, and I had 32 quid left out of the 133 quid, because it was £99 one way, if you remember. <laughs> and I'm going down... I know, I don't remember, <laughs> but yeah. Anyway, uh, Key Biscayne Boulevard, and I'm, for some reason I stopped a guy on rollerblades going, but I'd never seen rollerblades. I mean, nobody was on rollerblades in this country. So we're talking, what, like 80s? Late, late 70s. Late 70s. And uh, this guy, I stopped him to ask him directions, and he was a scouser. What's the odds against that in Miami, Keepers Game Boulevard? And um, within three or four hours, I was sailing out of Miami Harbour on a cruise ship as a, as a waiter. And, 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 that, and, and, and that was the start of learning about life. So you literally flew to Miami and you just thought, I'll, get some I, bar work or something. I'll do, do something. I've been born and raised in pubs, so I could serve you on the. You'd do something, wouldn't you? You've so got, you, never been lazy. So you ended up on this cruise ship? I ended up on loads of cruise ships. My first cruise ship was the Emerald Seas. I shared with four Jamaicans. Yeah. And, and I drink a bit too much. I've never smoked cigarettes and I've certainly never took drugs. And for weeks I felt lightheaded with these Jamaicans and they'd been smoking ganja all day long in their cabin. <laughs> I, I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> so that was, that was just a learning curve, wasn't it? And then one day it dawned on me that this is what's going on. Uh, but, and how long, were you, how long were you on? Ten years. On the cruise ships for? Wonderful ten years. Ten, young years. Man, ten years. Different ships, but I met some great people, had some fun. Learned about life. What did you learn? I learned about people, how to deal with people. I had some great, just good experiences, travelled the world, met different cultures. Just as a young man who probably was a, thinks he knows, most young men don't think, I've got people work for me think they know everything. And, and of course, you know, you're learning about life, aren't you? Well, you're learning about life, but I suppose in a way it's, 
it's a, a rarefied life. It's, it's not quite real, yeah, no, is it? If I look back now, look, I've got drunk as a skunk with Cary Grant. I mean, I, you know, so if I look back now, and at the time I thought, oh, I'm, just, I'm having a drink with this old boy. You know, that's the reality, isn't it? I, I knew who he was, but it was now, and I look back and these iconic figures that I met and Dorothy Lamour and Stuart Granger. I've still got a bottle of Stuart Granger's 21-year-old Shivers Regal whiskey in my, that I've never opened from, from 19... He was given uh, by Princess Diana for the voyage, maiden voyage of the Royal Princess. So when I look back, now I'd appreciate it much more, wouldn't I? When you, when you drop in that you got drunk as a skunk with Cary Grant, I can't just crew let bar. that... I can't, I can't let that just slide down the... the crew down, bar, down not the in the main bar, crew bar. Crew, really. In the crew bar. Yeah. So he came down to the crew yeah, bar. Yeah, I dragged him down there, yeah. But I was a young fellow. But what things, was he like? Fine. I, don't, I was. At eight, I didn't. I'd probably be more in awe now, wouldn't I? At those, the, I was fighting the world. It wasn't a problem. Do you know? What I mean? You just taking on the world when you were that age. Did you just? Did you always just have what seems to be this incredible confidence that it doesn't matter? I had you dinner with some friends anywhere. last night, and I said I'm coming on next program tomorrow, and they said, "Oh, you, are you?" Not? I said, "No." I said because I'll be honest with him. And if we talk about racing, at the risk of being arrogant, I know about racing. It's all I know. I've given my life to racing. The only two things I ever loved in my life was one girl and a dog, Charlie and, and um, Nancy. And I make no apologies. And I remember she saying to me one day, you'll have racing more than me. And, and I couldn't argue with her. So I don't know, as a kid, having bets in the pubs, we used to have the old bookies runners and, you know, and the old boys would be having six or eight pints at lunchtime and having a Yankee. And just the way it was, wasn't it, you know? But that, this is the thing. You say you've given your whole life to racing, but not quite your whole well, life to racing. And, you we, know, had you, a, we had a gap, yeah. Yeah, but, but but what I'm saying is that you you had that period in your youth where oh, that was, you, that does, you were, that were having formative me, experiences. Made me, made me. I mean, you know, I, how did, how did you get off the ships? How did you get off the ships, and why did you get off? The ships? Uh, chance again, bit of chance. I, I had, you know, I made a few quid relevant to what it was in my life. Yeah. it wasn't in real money, but and the P and O at the time I worked for. Um, Got rid of all the unions and gave... We could stay if we wanted to. And I just felt it was time I was 28 or something. And I looked around me and I, 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 I've always believed in the wheel, what I call the wheel. So there's a wheel in life. The wheel can include, not in any order, alcohol, drugs, uh, dishonesty, whatever it may be. Getting on that wheel is the easiest thing in the world to do. Try getting off it. And I... Some of those people I worked on the ships became alcoholics. So in, you know, and I never... In those days, I was slim, fit... Uh and I, and I didn't drink much, they probably are no longer with us, some of those boys. Would you say that that lifestyle was... It was very easy to get on the wheel? Oh, so that, so that you're far more likely to get on the wheel if you're in that kind of game? And I think stable lads and lasses, I mean, the wheels well, off. That's what I was going to ask. I, and, and, and that, I think we have something to add. So, we, I said off air before we came on, I looked the other day, we've got the... I get upset when I talk about my team because I'm so proud of them. Excuse me. 18 months, we've not had a sick day. One member of staff, not one. And, and they, I make them work, I make them. I encourage them to work together and look after each other. We've built a team, because we've got bigger, and so people have joined us. And the odd one has joined us where it's a third or fourth job in 12 months. And I, and I sort of say to them, come on, guys, there's something not... So I get you fall out with a head lad or your boyfriend work, then you need to leave and all the rest of those things. But we need to encourage them to stay in the industry. If we make their job better, they won't flip, will they? And we don't want them to flit. I want my young girls particularly to stay with me till they're 22, 23 and look at me and I say, do you know what, I've had a great time, I'm off and I'm going to do something with my life. That's, for me, it's perfect. Now, I know we need to sustain staff going through, but I think the problem at the minute is that you go and ride somewhere and they make you ride seven or eight lots a day all day, you're exhausted, you're tired, there's no fun. We ride three or four lots a day. 
our, our breakfast room can be extra difficult at times, you know, with a bit of cheek, and a bit, but it's fun. But if you work anywhere in life, you have good and bad days, don't you? We need to have more good days and bad days. If you make people's jobs more bad days and good days, invariably they'll move on. Luck on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai.